This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time but still found the time to create a course grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Hello, hello, family, and welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy podcast. If you are in the military, a frontline hero, police officer, fire, EMS, or in the medical profession, then you are in the right place. This week's episode, I would like to thank Vernon Heron for coming on to this week's episode. I'm very, very grateful. You guys are in for a treat. Vernon, you could take it away and introduce yourself, sir. Thank you, Dave. Uh... Uh, good afternoon. My name is Vernon Heron. I'm currently the director of Officer Safety and Wellness in the uh, Baltimore City Police Department. Um, I, I am not from Maryland. I actually grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, I, um, I had an epiphany when I was about 16 years old. One of my friends was killed in the streets of East St. Louis, and I, I made a decision that I wanted to um, you know, make a change in my life. You know, East St. Louis is a very challenging community. So I wanted to like get out and start over, do something. So I applied with the FBI. They sent me out here to the East Coast. Uh, my job was simple to look at FBI, I uh, mean, look at reports from police departments and file them in an appropriate uh, filing place for uh, at the FBI, you know, fingerprint cards and um, uh, scenarios of what police have done in order to arrest a suspect. And was that as a civilian? As a civilian, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Civilian support. I worked um, as a civilian for my current police department too for uh, four years. Yeah, we so have that in common. FBI, it's the FBI's way of recruiting people into the ranks by bringing them early. Uh, to be an agent in the FBI back then, and 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 still to this date, you have to have three years of work experience. So I didn't have three years of work experience. So uh, other than summer jobs, so I. Uh, you know, took on the task of coming out here to be a clerk for the FBI. And again, my job was to uh, file fingerprint cards away. And as I read uh, these incidents involving police officers, I really got excited. Like, this is something I really want to do. So I called my dad and said, listen, I think I'm going to quit the FBI. He thought somebody had hit me in the head. He's like, what <laughs> the FBI? I said, I want to be a real police officer. And, you know, 
He said, well, I thought the FBI was police and I had to explain to him, listen, they are an investigative body of the federal government. I want to be on the streets. I want to be in the community. That's in my DNA. So I, I left the FBI and joined the Maryland State Police. Uh, worked there for 27 and a half years of my life. Uh, it loved every second of it. Loved wearing that uniform. Uh, loved high-speed chases. Uh, at some point, I left uh, patrol and became a detective. Uh, then I went on to narcotics and, you know, worked my way up the ranks from trooper to major, commanded the first violent crime strike force in the Maryland State Police history. Uh, after I retired from the Maryland State Police, I was fortunate enough to be appointed the public safety director in Prince George's County, Maryland. Public safety director, as you know, is in charge of police department, fire department, corrections, all the first responding agencies. Did that for seven years. And then I did some consulting for the Department of State where I traveled the world teaching crisis management. You know, places like Ecuador, uh, Tanzania, Africa, Amman, Jordan, Turkey, uh, teaching crisis management to inspector generals of police on how to respond to uh, whether it's a terrorist attack or a natural disaster. Um, and as you know, there's a natural disaster going on in Turkey and Syria now. It's unfortunate that thousands of people have lost their lives. Um, uh, after I did that for about five years, uh, one of my uh, subordinates, former subordinates in Prince George's County, had got elevated to appointed the police chief in Baltimore City, and he asked me to join him uh, to create this early intervention uh, model that was dormant in Baltimore City. And then about a year later, I became the director of officer safety and wellness for the Baltimore City Police Department. So full disclosure, Dave, when I was a trooper, there was no such thing as health and wellness. Yes. You know, uh, you, you there was no crying in police work. There was no, I need to take a day off for a mental health break. It was toughen up buttercup and come back to work. You know, I, I can tell you cases after cases where officers were involved in critical incidents. And within 48 hours, they had to be back on patrol. Oh, my God. Uh, over the years, we've learned that Trauma associated with police work impacts one's mental health, trauma in general. So my job was to create a health and wellness initiative that would help employees manage the trauma after they became police officers. Um, uh, and, and Dave, I don't have to tell you this, the, the um, a divorce rate is high in police work, uh, alcoholism is high, and the suicide rate is high. More police officers kill themselves than they kill in the line of duty every year in this country. And, and the nexus to all of those negative things that happen to us mentally and physically is police work, the trauma associated with it. So um, one of the things that we are doing here is we've built a program to help our officers manage the trauma that they deal with on a daily basis. Um, you know, we, I like to tell people that when we uh, get applicants into the police department, we do a full, uh, background investigation on them. We go to their neighborhoods, we do a credit check, we do a criminal history check, we do a physical, we do a psycho psychological, and we actually get people into the police department who is as perfect as perfect can be. And within five years, their, their, their mental state and their physical state starts to deteriorate. Well, it's not because of the individual uh, is not taking care of themselves. It's because 
they don't understand that the what impact trauma has on you when you see it day in and day out, especially like a place like Baltimore City. I learned the term cumulative trauma when I was uh, in one of your classes. Thank you very much for everything that you do. I was in, it was a peer support class and I was very excited to be there. Heard some phenomenal speakers, you being one of them. And um, I think you started off the session, right? You started off the day. You yes. were the very first yes. one. Yeah, you, you started off yeah. with a bang, man. Yeah. Whew, you told you told some incredible stories and uh, I don't even know where to start. I think I think it's best if we start with your police career. Okay. Um, you went through your your own version of trauma. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. I typically, so, well, I, I was just going to say, I typically don't ask people about trauma on my podcast. I typically ask them about the funniest or the craziest thing that ever happened to them. But I know that you've helped so many people heal from trauma that I know that you're okay talking about your situation. That's the only reason why I ask you about yep, yours. Absolutely. So. Uh, let me digress just a little bit. When I was anointed disposition as health and wellness director, I asked the police commissioner, what the hell is health and wellness? And what does it have to do with police work, right? And he said, well, some police departments are starting health and wellness units. You need to do research. And when I did the research, Dave, I found out that police departments really were just scratching the surface when it came to health and wellness. But the more I delved into what health and wellness is and what it's supposed to do, I realized how important of a resource it is for first responders and police officers. Um, uh, no one talked to me about health and wellness as a Maryland State Trooper, right? Um, uh, there was no such thing as stress as a police officer. That word did not exist. Um, but and 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 not only the stress associated with police work, but the the, the trauma that we may have been exposed to before we came to the police department. They don't ask you about that in your application process. They don't ask you, hey, have you ever been traumatized? Have you ever been victimized? And these things that really police department should want to know, not to use it as a opportunity to disqualify you, but to say, hey, listen, you're probably, you're going to come into an organization where you're going to be exposed to trauma on a regular basis. We have some counseling to help you manage that pre-existing trauma. So you come in, and, and as you know, you took the class, I, I equate our brain with as a sponge. And sponge will soak up uh, the liquid. And if your brain is a sponge and the liquid is trauma, if you don't manage that trauma, that liquid will overflow out of that sponge. That sponge will cease to soak it up, and it'll come out when you least expect it in a, in a, uh, uh, a domestic or when you're arresting a suspect. Uh, I had some pre-existing trauma. I lost my best friend. I was 17 years of age, and he was killed in the streets of St. Louis. I um, I struggled with his death because that night before he was killed, we were supposed to go out together. Uh, and I found out who he was going out with, who was going to be accompanying us. And I was like, nah, <laughs> I knew these guys were thugs. I'm like, hey, man, I'm not hanging around with them. Why are you hanging out with them? And he kept convincing me that they were okay. Unfortunately, the same people who I knew with thugs end up um, robbing him and, uh -huh. and and murdering him that night. Uh -huh. um, and 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 there's been a lot of traumatic events. You know, when I grew up in East St. Louis, I thought everybody went to funerals every year. I, I thought that was the norm throughout the country. 
Uh, it wasn't until I got to college that I realized that was not the norm. So, but <clears throat> all of this trauma I had before I came to the police department, I never sat down with a mental health professional. Um, and then when I became a state trooper, one night I was involved in a shooting. Um, um, you know, I, I am a people person. You know, I went into this restaurant uh, that I had gone to quite often to get some food to take home to the family. Uh, the restaurant manager knew I was a, a detective in the state police, and they came to me and said, hey, there's a man out in the parking lot with a gun threatening people, you know. And I just get off work and so forth, and, and Prince George's County has literally like 23 police departments. And I was like, you know, hey, Mike, call the call police. 911. Call 911. Yeah, call the police. But as I thought about it, I'm thinking, you know, if something happens out there and I'm inside getting food, it's not going to be a good, good headline. So I went out there. On my way out, I saw another police officer who was off duty. I knew it was a police officer who worked at one of these 23 police departments because I played basketball against him, right? And I relayed the message to him that Mike had given to me about this man in the parking lot with a gun. So as I went out to the parking lot, thinking that my, uh, knowing that my backup was right behind me, I told Mike, when you call, 911, let them know there's an off-duty Maryland State Trooper, African-American, armed and plain clothes. Uh, so when I went out there, um, and I had never been involved in a shooting before as a police officer, uh, you know, there was a man out there with a gun, and he was threatening people, and and uh, I ordered him to, uh, I ordered him to, to uh, drop the gun, and he didn't. Um, and I was, um, I'm sorry about that. That's what I was, uh, I was put in a situation where I ordered him to drop the gun. He did not drop the gun. Um, um, I was, had taken cover and, um, I kind of felt like when I said state police drop the gun, he didn't hear me because he kept threatening people with the gun. <clears throat> so I committed the ultimate sin in police work. I gave up my cover and I walked toward him. Uh-huh with my badge in one hand and the gun in another hand. And I um, I uh, ordered him to drop the gun. He turned toward me. He started, um, started shooting. Um, I returned fire. And eventually he went down. <clears throat> and um, everything was in slow. You, know, you hear people talking about these traumatic events. They go in slow motion. Everything was in slow motion. I couldn't tell you what his face looked like. But I can tell you what his belt buckle looked like. That was my training kicking in, saying, shoot for center mass. And I focused on center mass. And um, um, when he went down, uh, uh, I went over to him and he was bleeding. I mean, um, this was my first time seeing a human being bleeding like that. And, and you know, he was dying. Uh, I had to give him first aid. Um, and all the time this was going on, I, I'm thinking I'm in a dream. I'm like, is this really happening? So to um, to make a long story short, internal affairs came. I went back to the state police barrack. I, I uh, <clears throat> went against my attorney's advice and gave a statement. When I first started to get a statement, my voice cracked. And I was had no idea. I'm like, where's my voice cracking? Let me drink some water. I drank some water. And I said, all right, let's go. And the next time I tried to describe what happened at night, I just broke down and started crying. And uh, my body and my mind was going through 
uh, uh, something I'd never experienced before. Shock. <clears throat> Shock. So what I told the detective, I said, listen, man, give me a break. I want to give you a, a statement, but go talk to that police officer who was behind me when this happened. You know, he's an ideal witness. I don't know what happened to him once the shooting started. And the uh, detective said, we interviewed all the witnesses out there in the parking lot. There was not a police officer amongst them. What's his name? And and right then I realized that this guy had gotten in his car and, and driven home, which really angered me. Um, I, um, I decided that it wasn't important to tell anyone about, um, I, I, I told the, the detective, I said, you know what? It was a lot of stuff going on. Maybe I'm mistaken. Excuse me. But anyway, I got through the, uh, interview, uh, went home. My wife and, and, and daughter met me at the door. I never will forget the looks on their faces. How, how they look uh, the next morning. I, I I couldn't get to sleep that night, Dave. I couldn't get to sleep. Uh, I kept, my mind kept racing. I kept um, thinking about in my mind what had occurred that night. So in order to get to sleep, I started second guessing myself. In order to get to sleep, I literally uh, got something to drink. Um, I'm not a big drinker, but I, I drank enough to fall into a stupor where I can get to sleep. Fortunately, every night after that shooting, I had to get drunk in order to fall asleep. And I didn't realize what was going on with me. Um, I had a friend call me uh, at some point and, and asked me how I was doing. He read in the paper I was involved in shooting. And he started describing all of these symptoms I was going through, not being able to get to sleep, uh, paranoid drinking to excess and he said he he thought I had PTSD which shocked me I'm like wait a minute that's a term for military and he says oh no police officers get it more than military so I was relieved to know what it was and I was relieved to know he said he had been through I'm like what can I do there's got to be a pill or something I could take he says no you have to go see a psychiatrist right now listen this was back in a time where if you told somebody that you're going to see a psychiatrist police officer First thing to do is take your badge and your gun. Yep. Your career would not be static. You would either uh, be forced out or they would put you in some administrative position for the rest of your career. Um, and so I resisted that. I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. But at some point, at some point, Dave, I, I had to go see a psychiatrist. And they literally, they got to literally save my life. So it was years before I, after this, I eventually got back in the saddle again. I went through some more growing pains. I would go to work and, and people would greet me as a hero. You know, one guy was would greet me as like, don't shoot, don't shoot. And, you know, being funny. And eventually I had to tell him, hey, stop doing that. You know, he looked at me as like bewildered, like, I'm just joking. You know, I'm just joking. I'm like, hey, you were not injured. And I'm like, yeah, I was injured. You know, I wasn't shot, but I was injured. Uh, and every time somebody reminded me that shooting, I would bleed emotionally. Um, so it took me a while to, you know, after the, the mental health professional got me through this. And I went on with my career. Years later, I was teaching a class and I started to recount that night. And this was like years after that, after I left the state police. And my voice started to crack and I started getting emotional. And I'm like, what the hell? I had already stopped seeing a psychiatrist. 
So I said, I need to go back and start seeing somebody. So I went back to see a psychiatrist. And to this day, uh, um, I still see a psychiatrist. You know, uh, my, my mental health professional keeps me grounded. When you start doing this peer support. Okay. How many years have you been doing this now? Oh, wow. Um, I've roughly, been doing roughly. this since 2017. It was when we really started to get the program off, um, off the ground. Probably the last three years, we've really gotten to a point where it's almost on autopilot, where we have 50, 58 peer support members. If an officer is involved in a shooting, this is one example, that officer would not go home and face the same dilemmas that I faced. Number one, the officer's going to talk to a mental health professional that night. That officer's going to understand if you can't get to sleep, it's a result of this trauma you've been involved in. Here are the things I want you to do. Here are the things I don't want you to do. I don't want you to drink. You know, you can exercise. You can, like, go out with the family, but do everything but drink alcoholic beverages. Uh, that officer would get 10 days administrative leave. That officer would not have to come back work to work until 10 days. And after 10 days, that officer will come to my office, get a debriefing, and we ask a litany of questions that we got from um, a, a mental health professional about, hey, how's your eating? How's your sleeping? Um, you know, how's your drinking? And we ask them all these questions. And and uh, it's about 10 questions. And it culminates with, hey, um, how do you feel about going back to work? A lot of officers like, I'm ready to go back, be with my team. But we'll we'll put them in restricted duties. There, it's a gradual process to go back into full duty. They'll sit on the desk, they answer the calls, or do something else, and then we eventually get them back to work. Um, we've been doing this for the past several years. It's been very effective. We track the data prior to us starting this initiative. Police officers are returning to work faster than they were before we started this. Um, and I, it, and, and probably we've only had one police officer who has not been able to return back to work, uh, after the shooting. I mean, he has one of the worst cases of PTSD I've ever seen in my life. You know, his sister reached out to me. She found my card in, in his wallet and said he was suicidal and we got him some help and so forth. Uh, he could never return back to work. We could never get him in a position where he can continue his career. So that's one of the sad cases that that still haunts me to this day, because Baltimore City is one of the is the only jurisdiction state of Maryland that doesn't recognize PTSD as a medical disability. I just testified before the city council and I told them we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We ask these men and women to put their lives on the line every day. And then somebody gets injured mentally with PTSD, which is a which is a medically um, 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 diagnosis, right? Um, and we won't allow that officer to retire on a medical disability if it's PTSD. Um, so that's one of the fights that that we're still fighting here in Baltimore. I think you had also talked about when someone is isolated and they move from another state because I, I, I'm sure you're aware um, when someone takes their life, it affects so many of their coworkers. Mm -hmm. um nypd just suffered a loss in the uh, off-duty the guy was shot in a robbery oh my god yeah, yeah. so the, so they just suffered a loss um 
Could you just talk about like that? I I forget what it's called. Um, when it's not you directly involved, but it's uh, you know, it's still yeah. trauma. What's Indir that, what's that indirect trauma. Indirect trauma. Yeah, it's indirect. I mean, so here's here's one of the things, and I'm, that's a great question. Um, you know, I found out early in my career that if a police, another police officer was killed in Atlanta, dude, and I had to go to the funeral, it was very emotional for me. It was very emotional for my family because your family thinks like, oh my God, it could have been you. You know, so you start second guessing yourself. Um, if one of your colleagues is shot or injured in the line of duty and you work with this person or they work in the same department, these thoughts automatically infiltrate your mind. Because listen, police work is dangerous. And, and as much as we love to do it and as much as people come to work every day in spite of all the dangers, there are a lot of police officers that lose their lives in the line of duty. All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.